Good evening, friends, and welcome. It is uh, good to be together uh, as we continue our series in the book of Acts. Uh, let me pray uh, as we open up. Uh, dear Lord, I thank you that we can uh, gather together this evening. I thank you that you speak uh, through your word uh, and that your spirit convicts us of the things that we need to hear. And so, Lord, we pray that you are with us now uh, as we talk about the hope that we have in the resurrection. Amen. Believing uh, in any resurrection uh, is becoming increasingly awkward uh, for people living in uh, Western secular culture. Uh, it's awkward as we talk about Jesus and his resurrection from the dead, uh, but it's also awkward as we look forward and talk about our own mortality. Uh, on a society level, at our triumphant best, uh, we dismiss any belief in anything greater than ourselves, uh, anything spiritual and therefore anything to do with a resurrection. Uh, it's simply seen as a feeble attempt uh, to appease our own fear of death and our mortality. Uh, and increasingly, we, we sort of see that defiance in our funerals. Uh, so if you've ever been to a, a secular funeral, uh, the single most popular song these days is... Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, uh, which is kind of uh, a little bit ironic as we, as we are at a funeral, uh, but it's sort of one last attempt to you know, assert our own authority and control uh, into our lives, that, that we are the ones uh, that have power over our own destiny. And yet, sort of despite those sort of you know, words of bravado, uh, we still talk a lot about life after death at our funerals, uh, but it tends to lack any sense of real uh, hope or conviction. Uh, so we talk about things like, you know, they've gone to a better place uh, or they're looking down at us. Uh, and it's more wishful thinking than perhaps any real concrete belief. Uh, so we live as if there is nothing, uh, but we die... Uh, wishing there was something. Uh, and if there is something, uh, if the dead are indeed raised, uh, if there is a future, uh, then it would be prudent, wouldn't it, to be prepared for that future, whatever it is. Uh, and so that's what we want to spend some time looking at uh, this evening. Uh, I think as we look at this passage, uh, we do want to be affirmed in what we believe as Christians uh, in terms of our view of the resurrection, but also in how we engage with that belief with the rest of the world around us. Because there are going to, there's always going to be opposition. Uh, there are going to be people who hate us. Uh, and equally, there are going to be times uh, when we feel vindicated, perhaps, in hating others. Uh, so let's see what this passage has to say to us. Uh, for those who uh, need a bit of context uh, or a bit of a quick you know, weekly refresher on the book of Acts, uh, Paul has been travelling around the Roman world and uh, going from city to city, uh, telling people about Jesus. And almost inevitably uh, or invariably, uh, it has ended with someone trying to beat him to death uh, or getting him imprisoned so that someone else could beat him to death later on. Uh, and now he's come to Jerusalem, uh, and we can kind of guess what's going to happen. 
Uh, and sure enough, he's been there for all of a week at this stage. Uh, he's in the temple one day. Uh, the people see him and what do they do? Uh, they drag him out of the temple and they start to beat him to death. Uh, and if it wasn't for the commander of the Roman garrison, uh, they would have succeeded. Uh, so the passage uh, that we're reading tonight uh, is really the day after. And so uh, the commander brings Paul before the Sanhedrin, which is sort of the political and religious centre of Israel, uh, to address this issue. What has caused such an uproar? Why are people so outraged? And so we start tonight, verse 1. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers... I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Well, it didn't really take long, did it? Uh, We've met uh, a few Ananiases uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, The first Ananias uh, sold some property, tried to lie about it, dropped dead. We're not talking about that Ananias tonight. Uh, There was a good Ananias uh, who led Paul Uh, to become a follower of Christ. Uh, And this is our third Ananias. Uh, He's the high priest. Uh, He was, we know from history that he was the high priest from about 47 AD to about 58 AD. Uh, And he was known more as a politician than a priest. Uh, So he was known for his uh, greed, for his power, uh, and for his willingness to wield that power for his ends. Uh, And in fact, uh, at the time, people even made up little ditties about him, about how he filled his belly with the divine sacrifices. Uh, So he was well known, but not in a good way. He ends up dying in a ditch during a rebellion while he's trying to hide from everyone. Uh, So it doesn't go so well for him. Uh, But he's he's not a good bloke. Uh, And it doesn't take long for him to be offended by Paul. In fact, Paul really only just sort of gets out a few words before he gets smacked in the mouth. Uh, And Paul really doesn't appreciate uh, getting smacked in the mouth. Uh, So he says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Uh, So the Jewish uh, legal system, a little bit similar to ours, uh, had the idea of you're innocent until proven guilty. So you're not allowed to just start beating people up according to the law. Uh, And so it's ironic that the person who is supposed to uphold the law is now the one breaking the law as he beats up Paul. Uh, So we might sort of feel a bit, you know, that Paul's justified in his reaction. Uh, But at the same time, it's, it's a little uncomfortable, isn't it, to hear Paul kind of lash out. Uh, Jesus uses uh, that same whitewashed wall imagery when he talks about the Pharisees. He says, On the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. As a little bit of uh, a digression, uh, I find those words kind of confronting. You know, because we're all quite good at putting on a, a, a good facade, you know, what everyone sees from the front. Uh, but as Christians, we're called to be the same person on the outside as we are on the inside. Uh, we're called to be the same person on Sunday evening, sitting at church, uh, as we are during our work or at school or at uni uh, or with our children. 
Uh, and so, you know, this idea of hypocrisy, uh, it, it's true for the, for the Pharisees. The Pharisees need to hear it. But I think it's equally true for us. Uh, but getting back to Paul, uh, his reaction's kind of surprising. Uh, but what happens next, I think, is perhaps even more surprising. Uh, so verse 4, those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Uh, and this is a surprising bit. Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the rulers of your people. Uh, Paul may well have been right about the hypocrisy of the high priest, uh, but he was wrong in the way he reacted. Uh, and he recognizes that. He acknowledges that uh, as he uh, sees what's going on. Uh, and it's an interesting challenge for us, isn't it, as we think about how we react uh, when people treat us poorly. Because uh, often we feel uh, that if I'm right and they're wrong, and of course I'm always right and they're always wrong, uh, then I am justified in getting angry when they get it wrong. Uh, or sometimes we feel that you know, whatever sort of proportion of aggression they show towards us uh, or towards me, I have the right to show the same amount of aggression straight back. You know, it's kind of that eye for an eye. You started it, but I'm going to finish it. Uh, now, that's certainly how the world approaches conflict. Uh, and we feel very vindicated in approaching conflict like that. But as Christians, uh, as people who have God's word to guide us, as we have the Holy Spirit shaping who we are, uh, we are called to be very different. We're called to be like Christ. And so Jesus teaches us, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And again, uh, in Paul's letter to the Romans, he says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There is a place for righteous anger, uh, but anger as an emotion, I think more often than not, we get it wrong. Uh, more often it's about self-righteousness than genuine righteousness. And we may well win the battle, uh, but if that's our approach, we do lose the war because we, we lose who we've been called to be in Christ. And when we get it wrong, well, then we need to repent, don't we? Uh, we? We go back to that person and we say, sorry, we ask for forgiveness. And we come before God and we repent of what we have done. Uh, and thankfully, uh, we know that God is gracious and merciful. Uh, and we do it quickly uh, because we know anger and bitterness is kind of like a gangrenous sore. You know, the longer you leave it, the worse it becomes. And so as, we get, as we're in conflict, we need to deal with it quickly. So now we get to our point, you know, why the Sanhedrin have actually met. Uh, and in one sentence, uh, the whole thing descends into chaos. So the back half of verse 6, Paul says, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Uh, when I was 16, I went and lived uh, briefly uh, for one summer uh, in Washington, D.C. with my uncle. Uh, and as part of that, we went to an a, uh, ice hockey game. So now if, you've ever, uh, if you haven't seen an ice hockey game, let me sort of tell you how it goes. So uh, you, you're going along, you know, everyone's chasing a puck. One person rams another person into the wall. Uh, that person then pushes back. 
and then the gloves come off. It's all very dramatic. Uh, and then they don't just go in. Everyone jumps in. It just stacks on. Uh, and then finally the whistle goes. Someone gets sent off. You have a power play. The music starts. Dun, 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 and then you know, uh, off it goes again. It's brilliant. Um, but if you can kind of get that, that chaos, um, that's sort of the Sanhedrin at this point. Okay? And if you think I'm exaggerating, maybe a little, um, Verse 10, oh, I'm not exaggerating at all. Uh, verse 10, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. That doesn't happen in a hockey game. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. I mean, that's about as chaotic as you get. And then some of the people who are there are so outraged at what Paul has done and um, then 40 of them, they commit themselves, verse 14, we've taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now, of course, we know how this story ends, so I'm not sure how it worked out for those 40 blokes. Um, but at some point, they were very, very hungry. Uh, but out of all of this, all of this started because of Paul's hope in the resurrection. And we see why this issue is contentious in verse 8. So the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believe all these things. So the resurrection was as contentious then as it is now. And so for a greater portion of Jewish society as well as Greek society, uh, they believed God was there for the present. Uh, for blessing, uh, for security, uh, to make their life better now. Uh, but there was no crossing over between the, the physical and the spiritual. So even though the Sadducees and the Pharisees were reading the same scriptures, uh, they read them very differently. The Pharisees tended to read them more literally. Uh, the Sadducees tended to read them more figuratively. So uh, let me just give you a couple of verses, and, and Phil read one uh, to begin with, of just sort of what does the Old Testament have to say about death and resurrection. So let me pick three. Uh, Isaiah 25, 8. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. As you hear those words, if you've read the Bible a bit, they kind of resonate with, with revelation, don't they? The idea of taking away all tears. Uh, Isaiah 26, But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. And then in Daniel, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So it was all there in the scriptures uh, that there was an expectation of a resurrection. Uh, but again, some people took it literally, some figuratively. But in Jesus, when Jesus rises from the dead, we see that he, God really did mean it literally, uh, that we really have something to look forward to beyond simply the present. And the proof is in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, but of course, if you're a sceptic, uh, you'd say, well, actually, the resurrection of Jesus isn't really proof at all, because how do you prove that Jesus really did rise again from the dead? 
Uh, and in one sense, that's true. How do you prove it? You know, it's not like gravity. Gravity is simple. You get a ball, you drop it, you get a ball, you drop it, you get a ball, you drop it. Uh, the same thing happens every time and you go, ha-ha, gravity. Uh, but you can't do that with history. Uh, you can reenact history, but you can't repeat history. Uh, and so when we talk about history and proof in history, uh, then it really comes to two things. It comes to what are people saying happened, and then do you trust the person saying it? Can you actually believe that this person is telling you the truth? And part of trust is you know, understanding their motivation. So if we suspect that they're motivated by greed or power or misguided loyalty or a desire to sort of avoid punishment, uh, then understandably, uh, we're more suspicious. Uh, but when it comes to Paul and the apostles, uh, how, how should we understand them? Uh, can we trust them uh, to be telling us the truth? Uh, and there's perhaps a couple of options uh, for the sceptic. I've, I've picked three. Uh, if you've got one that really sticks in your mind, then come and chat to me later. Uh, but I think one of the options is to suggest that they are just simply completely delusional. Uh, that the tomb might have been empty, uh, however that happened, someone stole the body. Uh, but everything else they experienced was simply a sort of self-reinforced, uh, earnestly believed delusion of reality. Uh, that they were simply so desperate to believe it that they couldn't actually see what was real. Uh, and perhaps for Paul, uh, it is the desert. Uh, he's travelling from Jerusalem to Damascus. It really is stinking hot. Uh, you know, perhaps for him it was, you know, you know bit of blindness, a bit of heat stroke, it all comes together to make this rather dramatic but not real moment. Um, that's a possibility. Uh, a second option is perhaps they're just bald-faced liars, uh, that they, are, they know the truth, they know this isn't the truth, uh, but uh, they're so committed to it that they're willing to lie, uh, partly just to stand up for Jesus, they're so committed to this cause and to who he was that even though it's not the real truth, you know, it's still a good thing. Uh, Paul didn't really get struck blind, uh, and it was all just made up for their particular cause. I think the difficulty with that is you come back to that question of motivation, don't you? What, what motivates them to do this? What motivates Paul to go from being a respected man in society, uh, someone with power and prestige, uh, to someone who is hated and despised and repeatedly beaten? What motivates him to do that? What motivates Peter to go from, I do not know this man, and denying Jesus three times, uh, to standing up a few days later in the middle of Jerusalem and proclaiming Jesus is Lord, who's risen again from the dead? You know, there's no power advantage, there's no financial advantage, uh, there is no uh, motivation to avoid punishment because the way to avoid punishment is just don't get involved. I think the last option uh, is to simply say that everything that we read uh, is simply written by people a long way from these actual events. Uh, it's kind of like the Chinese whispers of history, uh, that people talked about it and over time it becomes more myth and legend than history. Uh, and at that point you've really got to go back and say, well, well how do we know that you know, the book of John really is the book of John? Uh, how do we know Matthew's Matthew and all the rest of it? Uh, and what we end up with is, is discovering that there are just so many copies of these books uh, written for in so many or found in so many different places 
and they are all so consistent, they're not identical, but they're consistent, and certainly the message is consistent, uh, that it's difficult to argue that they were somehow written much later. Uh, and certainly, you know, when you push to when they are found, like the earliest one was found in the early hundreds, Christians still aren't powerful. They still don't have any place in society. Uh, the gospel is not a gospel that helps them get power. In fact, if anything, it helps them lose power. Uh, so again, you come back to this question of we've got credible witnesses, uh, we've got a credible history. And uh, So perhaps for you, as you sit here tonight, you might go, yeah, but I just still don't believe you. Uh, and my encouragement is to just to try to work out in your mind earnestly um, what it is, what, what's the obstacle? Uh, what is the thing that just stops you recognising that Jesus really did rise from the dead? Because that's perhaps a big stumbling block. So, if the resurrection is real and Jesus really did rise again from the dead, uh, then what's the hope behind the resurrection? Why is it so significant? And I think there's a couple of things. Uh, at the cross, Jesus dying pays the price for our sin. So he stands in our place, suffers the consequences we deserve. Uh, but it's in the resurrection uh, that we actually have confidence that that price is actually paid. Uh, dying is actually relatively easy. It's about the only thing humans are really good at. Uh, that's not so hard. It's the rising again from the dead that shows that something has really changed, that Jesus really has defeated death. And so we can be confident when he says, I've defeated death and I've paid the price for you. So uh, Paul says it like this in Romans 4. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Uh, justification simply means to be made right with God. Uh, but in, his re in the resurrection, we also see his authority as Saviour and Lord established beyond doubt. So Jesus really is the promised Messiah. He really is the Son of God who brings life. And we gain life when we acknowledge his Lordship, when we repent and believe. So again, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And when we get to that point, uh, we recognise that submission actually brings freedom. Uh, it frees us from the accusation of sin. It frees us from the uncertainty of the future. Uh, it guides our steps. Uh, Jesus says, actually, I've, I've shown you how to live because I want you to have a good life. Uh, it's not necessarily an easy life, but let me show you how to live in relationship with me rather than against me. And finally, when we get to that point of realising the resurrection is real and that submitting to Christ is good, uh, then we can be clear about the hope we have in the future. Uh, we no longer fear death because we know that death, you know, it isn't a full stop. You know, it's more of a comma or a semicolon or something like that. You know, it's a pause before what next. If you've ever been to a Christian funeral, uh, they're very different to a secular funeral. Uh, we still uh, grieve deeply. Uh, we still talk about the tragedy of death. And we should uh, because death is part of the brokenness of our worlds, part of sin. And so we should 
grieve death. Uh, but we also celebrate life. Uh, not simply life for ourselves or what we achieved or what we did, but life that we have in Christ. Uh, that Christ died for us so that we have life in the present and eternal life in the future. And that is a clear and present hope. Uh, so let me finish uh, with some words from Paul that he wrote to the Thessalonians that for me, uh, as we talk about death, uh, I think these are some of the best words in Scripture. i use these to close. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Amen.